0: Welcome back everybody to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast and coming up in today's program we're going to be going back to the 1970s when soccer took the USA by storm led by the original rock and roll football team. They were of course the New York Cosmos who managed the coup of the century in persuading Pelé that he should shun Europe and the rest of the world to deliver the American public the glitz, the glamour, the razzmatazz of the greatest sport in the world. Now, alongside Pele was a 20-year-old kid from Birmingham. It was surplus to Ron Saunders' requirements at the Villa. So, Steve Hunt swapped the grey skies of the Midlands for the city that never sleeps. And his new book, I'm With the Cosmos, is out next week. He is my guest today, and we'll be talking to him very shortly. a book that landed in the office in the last couple of weeks which is worth mentioning and it's staying in the 1970s for one of the biggest sporting events of the decade it took place not in europe not in america not in asia but in africa kinshasa to be exact 30 seconds
1: left in round eight very even play. ali a sneaky right hand
2: another sneaky right hand this time he works over the shoulder this is the culmination three Just up
1: to the knee eight that's it the greatest stop for the greatest fight of his life watch it now watch it closely there he's been taking it, it easy and then suddenly the moment came Suddenly the moment came, watch it, and that was no phantom, that was no phantom punch, that was no phantom punch, and he's down and out.
2: Definitely was not a phantom punch.
0: unmistakable sound of the rumble in the jungle the book is mohammed ali kinshasa 1974 and it's by a company called titan comics it's a hardback book which blends a combination of rare and never seen before photographs and comic art illustration to produce a really good book It's an unusual concept Uh, But it works exceptionally well. The story actually starts with the build up to the fight. It includes Don King getting incarcerated before his release on the deal that led to the rumble in the jungle. The book is available now. You can find a link to it on the website at talkingsportsbooks.com in the bookstore. And so then to 1970s America, which was about to embrace soccer for the very first time in its history. And there was only one place to be to experience this phenomenon. It was New York, and the team was the New York Cosmos. Gunn's new book, it's called I'm With the Cosmos, it tells the story of his colourful career, with emphasis on that period of time in the 1970s when he boarded a plane to New York City, swapping Birmingham for Bermuda preseason, lining up alongside the greatest player in the history of the game, who was about to weave his magic in a whole new arena. Initially, the American public had little knowledge of this man, It was up to the media to introduce him.
1: Edson Orantes do Nascimento. He was born into the poverty-stricken family of an injured minor league soccer player called Dundinho. But by age 17, he was playing in the World Cup in Sweden, a baby among hard-bitten competitors. The four-letter name Pele soon flashed around the world when he scored twice against Sweden to win the Cup. He was living in a dream when they welcomed him home to Bauru, a national hero at an age when his friends were still in school. The street urchin from Bauru walked with queens and statesmen before he was old enough to vote. He visited country after country, and he charmed everyone he met with his warm smile and simple direct personality. Although he was injured at the World Cup in 1962, Brazil won anyway and could retire the Cup in 1966. That was not to be. In England, several teams set as their goal not the winning of the Cup, but the elimination of Pelé. Portugal achieved that dubious ambition and ruined Brazil's hopes to retire the Cup. Pelé would wait four more years for another chance. But there was always something to strive for. Pressure built on him as he neared the 1,000th goal of his career, a feat previously thought impossible. 400, for example, is a large total of lifetime goals in soccer, but in a torrential rain, one November night in 1969, before some 80,000 drenched spectators in Rio's Maracanã Stadium, Pele scored that thousandth goal, and Brazil was one big party. The 1970 World Cup would be in Mexico, a last opportunity for Pele to lead his country to victory. A marvelously imaginative play of him and his teammates brought the Brazilians their long-sought goal, that third World Cup. October 2nd, 1974, Pele's last game for Santos. The career everyone, including Pele, thought was ended. But they did not yet know of the Cosmos. They had a wild dream that they could bring Pele to play in the United States. He had agreed to play. Rumors said the price was four and a half million dollars. Four and a half million to play soccer in a country that cared little about the game? Four and a half million to play with an assemblage of minor leaguers on a team that on one occasion drew a crowd of only 79 spectators? Well, that was the deal. And there must have been times when even the moguls of Warner Communications wondered if they had made a terrible mistake. But the crowds in the North American soccer league began to grow, slowly at first, then at an accelerated pace always the burden was on Pele to sell the sport. To do that, he had to maintain his marvelous skills as he moved into his mid-30s, and he did it. Watch his amazing bicycle kick here. He has scored only six goals in his life with it, but this was one, against the Miami Toros in August of 1976 at Yankee Stadium. It's an almost impossible-looking move. American youngsters began to bring their parents to the games rather than the other way around. Soccer had been growing, quietly but quickly, in American schools for a decade, and the kids who played knew the magic name Pele. That was the scene when Pele and the Cosmos won the championship of the North American Soccer League last month. The achievements are done now.
0: Now, you very nearly didn't actually get a career in football. The apprenticeship that you'd been promised at the Villa looked like it had been cancelled after they dropped a note through your door saying they'd given it to a boy from Sheffield. Now, had it not been for your mum, who worked in the same office as the Villa manager's dad, it was her intervention that actually led to your career starting.
3: That's right, yeah, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but uh, obviously it was a massive disappointment because I've been promised the apprenticeship um, and then for some unknown reason they put a letter through the door, they didn't even knock the door, that said unfortunately they gave my place to somebody in Sheffield. Um, so it was obviously, I was uh, totally gutted but my mum wouldn't have it <laughs> and off we stormed down to Villa Park
0: and uh so she actually yeah. literally walked into villa park banged on the manager's <laughs> office walked in and told him what he was going to do
3: yeah i, I mean from what i remember uh, she went and asked at the reception politely <laughs> but wouldn't take no f- for an answer um and vic crow came out and he was charming and he said there'd been a bit misunderstanding i was definitely getting an apprenticeship um and i think neville briggs who was the chief scout got a bit of a a rollicking shall we say
0: <laughs> yeah nearly cost him his job he told your mother on yeah. the way out did you ever find out who the boy from Sheffield? i didn't was? actually
3: know i would love to know who it was and whether he you know went on to to make pro it'd be great to know
0: yeah, good yeah. job it wasn't trevor hockey
3: <laughs> yeah yeah well obviously trevor was at villa eventually and then we met up again in las vegas how, how, how strange is that
0: Very. Another one of these things, which is of the time. I noticed there was a line that said, uh, after you signed your uh, apprenticeship forms, uh, your mum got a a £6 a week allowance for steak.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. They they had this thing back then that um, it was steak and raw eggs. So first thing in the morning, I was supposed to crack a couple of raw eggs into a glass and slug them down. And then my mum had uh, cooked my steak on a regular basis. (laughs) But yes, she got about £6 a week, yeah.
0: Changed a bit for you, didn't it, when Ron Saunders rocked up. Uh, You weren't really a fan, were you?
3: Oh, I'm not saying I wasn't a fan because he got results. Um, He got a certain way about him that didn't endear me to him. But um, I thought I was doing okay. I was actually told I was doing okay, Um, So it was a bit of a a shock when he said he was willing to let me go.
0: Your first game for Villa as a pro was with the reserves. It was memorable for all the wrong reasons, really, because you had a significant cartilage injury.
3: Well, I was very fortunate that they signed me pro when I was 17, you know, like a year earlier than than normal. So I realised I must have been doing okay, And we played Southampton Reserves at Villa Park on the Saturday, having just signed pro, and... Uh, Don McArthur in playing against uh, Peter Rodriguez.
0: Your full debut, though, was much more memorable. It was against Sheffield Wednesday, on the day that Villa were promoted to Division One.
3: That's right. Yeah, um, I got on for about the last fifteen, twenty minutes, which was like an absolute dream, you know, because the the supporters in for Villa at Sheffield was absolutely ran with Villa supporters a lot, which were my friends so to to get on the field and play in front of them was a massive thrill
0: you were one of the few people that actually nutmegged tommy smith and actually lived to tell the tale
3: <laughs> don't say it too loud <laughs> yeah uh, well I, th- I think he remembered because he he played in uh in america when i was out there and uh let's just say he went through me a couple of times over there as well so I tried to keep out of his way after that.
0: <laughs> so then you get this uh, call to go to the manager, Ron Saunders' office, uh, and he's yeah. told you there's a bloke in the canteen that wants to yeah. take you to to New York, and that he's accepted. So in other words, you haven't really uh, got a choice.
3: No, no, not at all. It was. I mean, if if you were summoned to Ron's office, you knew there was something up. um So, but when he he said, well. I've agreed to fear and I'm willing to let you go. It, it, I was just speechless. You know, I really was speechless because I thought things were going well at Villa. Um, and the guy was in the canteen. So and when he said New York, I didn't even realise we were playing football in New York. So it
0: was, I didn't... This was a former Birmingham City coach, wasn't it? Joe Mallow. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Wonderful bloke. Um, played a big part in my career over there. Um, yeah, and he put the... The idea to me, but obviously the key was when he he mentioned I'd have a decent player playing alongside me by the name of (laughs) Pele. You can't get much better than that.
0: It wasn't only that either, because you actually doubled your salary. It must have been one of those days when on your way home on the bus or in your car, you must be wondering whether you are actually dreaming this.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I doubled it to about £200 a week, which obviously was a lot of money then. (laughs) Not compared to today's money, of course. But um, it wasn't all plain sailing. It really wasn't. Um, Although You'd only just got married as well, by the way. I'd just got married to my first wife a month earlier. Uh, We'd bought our first house. Everything looked settled. And then this bombshell happened.
0: So here you are, on your way home, you've got this incredible offer to tell your wife about. How did the night go? Did you stop off on the way home to get a couple of bottles to celebrate with, or did you think that your wife might actually think it was all just a big wind-up?
3: Well, I, I remember I called her first and said, you're not going to believe what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she was great. She said, look, if, if you if you want to go, I'll be right there, so... you you need that kind of support so yeah she was great about it but that conversation that night was oh it was just crazy you know thinking that we're you know we're not just going to another part of england we're, we're actually crossing the pond to america so it was huge yeah
0: yeah yeah a couple of weeks before you've been training running up and down hills in in birmingham and you get there, and your, your pre-season yes. is on the
3: pink sand of Bermuda. Correct. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It really is crazy. Um, it was. I mean, I think that was the, the big thing that when I started writing this book, that it, it, it dawned on me what a challenge it was. You know, um, not just the fact it was a different culture and, you know, all that. It was the fact that I had to prove myself in front of world-class players. And I was 20 years old, you know, with a lot to learn. So it, it was a huge challenge for me, not not just the surroundings of it, but the training and playing alongside these people, trying to prove myself to them. And it, it really dawned on me when I started writing this book, you know, I was only 20.
0: <laughs> and your first two games, so yeah. you leave Bermuda and the next <laughs> couple of stop offs you're in Las Vegas and Hawaii.
3: Yeah, it's a little bit different than going to Preston or Hull, isn't it? Really.
0: What was it like? I mean, what was it like when you landed in Hawaii? I mean, as you say, you're a twenty-year-old kid from the back streets of Birmingham, and all of a
3: sudden you're landing in Honolulu. It's like Hawaii Five-O. Well, I didn't realise they didn't speak Birmingham over there, so uh, I had a problem with that. Um, but it was—it was, it was like fantasy. It's like fantasy island. I, I, it was just a whirlwind. Um, we were over in vegas first and then to hawaii i been to bermuda all in the space of two or three weeks and then back to new york and again that was a massive eye-opener as well
0: you didn't or your wife in particular didn't find it that easy to to settle you didn't have a car yeah. for a start uh, i noted a few That's interesting right. cab rides that you had in new york
3: oh yes, yeah. well well yeah you live and learn don't you um <laughs> By the time I went back the second year, I never got ripped off again. (laughs) But yeah, we got dropped off in the wrong areas of New York, pretty that way.
0: It it was almost like a scene from uh, National Lampoon's vacation with Chevy Chase watching you suddenly driving through (laughs) some of the worst areas. I
3: I think it was like 42nd Street and, you know, 42nd Street is not a place just to be dropped off for the first time in your life. So it, it was a huge... Huge shock.
0: Now, the the title of the book. I'm with the the yeah. cosmos. Now, those those four words were your passport yeah. to getting anything you wanted and going anywhere you felt that you wanted to go on any particular day. Tell us about your uh, first visit to the to the legendary Studio Fifty Four and uh, Disco Sally. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, Disco Sally. Yeah. I mean obviously it's not my kind of music, It was disco was very huge then, but I thought I've got to go, you know, it's this place, you know, it, it's worldwide, it's legendary. Um, but I felt a bit embarrassed jumping the queue, to be honest. You know, you've got this long line of various looking people all staring at you, and you, you just walk up to the front and say, I'm with the cosmos, and then you walk. So it, it was kind of, you know, a, a lot of the lads thought it was great, I found it embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean it, it. It was an experience, put it that way. <laughs> it really was.
0: Who was uh, so Disco Sally? Was yeah. uh, what was she? Yeah. Seventy years oh, old. I, I
3: think you've been uh, underestimating. Yeah, I'd say she was probably in the nineties. Uh, but let's just say she danced as well as any sixteen-year-old would
0: so you were you were in the roped off vip area were you uh schmoozing with any of the uh, local stars of the time there the uh Truman Capote used to be in there a lot Andy Warhol was in there do you ever bump into him
3: no I, I, I didn't know um I know Jagger used to go in and various people Debbie Harry used to be in there a lot didn't she do you know th- these people may have been in there but I w- I don't think I blinked all the time I was inside the place I just couldn't Believe what was going on, you know. Which obviously can't go into it too much, but oh please do, various, please uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, people were disappearing for for quite a few. They all had that very funny thing where they all appeared to have ruddy noses. Yeah, I know the one. This is it. Yeah, well, it had like um, it was almost like an old picture house that you'd imagine. There were upstairs that the seating was still there, so you could just go and sit down above and view the dance floor below. And that's where I saw the disco lady <laughs> gyrating. Provocatively.
0: <very laughs> vigorously. Now, this whole thing about rock and roll football, I mean, the dressing room is, is off limits to everybody Yeah. over here I and mean, in Europe. Yeah. Over there, it was like the bigger the star you were. Uh, You could just uh, roll in and have a chat with the players. I mean, you mentioned Robert Redford, Peter Frampton, who was huge back then, and Mick Jagger, all coming into the dressing room.
3: Yeah, I mean, we had... um, I couldn't get my head around this to begin with, but you get used to it. From the final whistle, you had 10 minutes to get showered and get some clothes on. Otherwise, the entourage would just be in there. And obviously, it's male and female reporters... So literally 10 minutes, you know, all I wanted to do is have a beer or something just to relax. But you had to get that shower done. Otherwise, you know, there you were in your your birthday suit. And obviously being run by Warner Brothers and their connections to the entertainment world, they would bring people in every game. You know, um, Muhammad Ali came in. To meet Pele that was a, a massive thing to see two icons you know
0: you described Pele as uh, a gentleman off yeah. the pitch always yeah. stopping to sign autographs on it yeah. a completely yeah. different yeah. person
3: oh as soon as he crossed the, the white line he could la- handle himself I mean as we know he, he took a lot of stick over over the years you know uh, various people tackles not nice uh, but first thing that stood out for me was not just his ability, which, you know, was enormous, but it's how he looked after himself. Um, and it, he would, you know, put his foot in, his elbow in. <laughs> He'd make sure he weren't going to be messed about, put it that way.
0: He had a go at you one day as well, didn't he? This was the, the day that you stuck your fingers <laughs> in your ears to pretend you couldn't. <laughs> you weren't
3: <laughs> listening to him. Uh, so he skipped now. <laughs> Obviously, it was very embarrassing, um, and but you were only twenty. Yeah, odd though. in my defence, you know that's the excuse I come up with now, anyway. <laughs> but uh, I, I learnt the hard way. But yeah, I had um, what I thought was a decent shot on goal. You know, it only just went over the crossbar, but he, he wasn't happy. He thought I should have passed to him, and he he kind of gave me a, a little bit of stick, which I put the fingers in my ear and told him where to go.
0: And tell me, uh, how long did you last on the field after that little incident?
3: Yeah, within 10 seconds, I was sat on the bench. <laughs> so, yeah, I did apologise. Um, and, it, you know, Pelly, the way he is, he, he just said no problem. Um, but you live and learn. That it's, it's all life, isn't it? That
0: infamous game in Fort Lauderdale, where he registered his ninety-first hat trick, you set him up yes. with a couple of yes. assists uh, as well. I mean, you had a yes. great you had a great relationship on the field with him.
3: I'd like to think so. Uh, we seemed to hit it off really well. I mean, it wasn't just Pele; we, we had a, a team of very, very good players. Or so the, the the standard really surprised me, to be honest. That was another worry for me going to the states. Uh, whether it, you know it'd be competitive, but it certainly wasn't in them. Certainly, seventy-seven, seventy-eight was very competitive. Um, but we, we had a good understanding. You know, I I got to know exactly what what his game was all about, and what he expected from me. So yeah, we got on great after that earlier spat. There was
0: there was a suggestion, should we say, that he was a protected uh, species because there was an occasion when you got sent off for doing <laughs> nothing yeah, <laughs> after correct. Pelé had uh, committed some heinous crime.
3: Well, I mean, it, it's it's on film, it's there, you know, I don't have to defend myself with it. I didn't do anything, but of course, when the referee turned around and said, Steve, I can't send him off, can I? You know, I, I knew what it was all about then. <laughs> But yeah, he showed his uh, he showed his boxing skills in that instance. That whole showbiz aura that was hanging around. I mean, the
0: team arrivals on yeah. the pitch are something else as well. I yes. mean, the the Fort Lauderdale team arriving. This was my favourite. Um, riding around the pitch <laughs> on the back of Hell's Angels bikes, and at the back of it is right. the right. hearse with the coach it. in it. Yes, it. Um, who gets out of a coffin and says, "We ain't dead yet." <laughs>
3: That's, 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 that's 100% correct. I mean, I, I'd seen many things over there, but that one really topped it for me.
0: Are we missing something here? Should we should we
3: adopt some of this uh, showbiz? Um, I don't know how it would go down. <laughs> uh, but it certainly was entertaining and the, the crowd absolutely loved it, you know. But, um, yeah, to see those bikes rev up and circle the pitch was quite intimidating, to be honest.
0: And this is as well, after you have the whole um, build up to the game with the supporters, because there's no hooliganism over there, they no. didn't have a problem. There's just a bit of a party atmosphere in the car park. And that was something oh, else yeah. that was surprising for you.
3: Yeah, I mean, when, when we arrived for the games in the car park you know, you'd park amongst the supporters, there's no separate car park. Um, so you'd be passing the what they call tailgate parties where they'd lift the boots of the cars and station wagons up um, and just party, really. And that's before the game. Um, great atmosphere, you know. Um, but regarding hooliganism, I only ever saw one bit of trouble over there. And what surprised me straight away was the supporters themselves sorted it out. They got they went and got the, the police. Somebody was uh, not... Um, behaved himself shall we say and they pointed him out all the people just pointed at him and he got ejected and that was it and that's the only time i ever seen a problem there's one player that i haven't mentioned yet
0: and that is of course the infamous or the famous giorgio Chinaglia. now his story is worthy of a book and a film on its own now he was let go by swansea in the late 60s heads over to rome and lancia where he helps them to a scudetto describe the scenes when you arrive at the station just outside rome and he's mobbed and carried through the streets on the shoulders of all of the fans
3: well it always mentioned that he was uh, you know a star over there um, but i didn't realize how much of a star and we arrived by train into the into the station and there was not space for one other supporter it was absolutely rammed of chanting supporters for giorgio and when he stepped off the train they got him on his shoulders and they they kind of walked him out the station (laughs) on the shoulders um he was loved he really was
0: the stories are so many Uh, but i think the best one or one of the best ones is when the Cosmos actually agreed to sign him, sent him his uh, plane ticket, economy, plane ticket, yeah. and he binned it, <laughs> chartered his own private jet, sent them the yeah. bill and said, yes. well, if Pele's got a private plane, I'm having
3: one. Yeah, That's, that kind of sums George's uh, thinking up, shall we say. <laughs> He's not to be outdone by anybody.
0: <laughs> Did he genuinely believe that he was Pele's equal?
3: Oh, I I would think he thought he was better. (laughs) Listen, Giorgio was the best goal scorer I have ever seen. His his knack for scoring goals at any angle in the air was unbelievable. Like he said to me, he said, look, we brought you to this team to to make goals for me.
0: This is when you (laughs) tried to score one on your
3: own. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that was the understanding. He said, "Look, I'm the goal scorer, you make them for me." And when when I when that song came with me, we got a long fine.
0: He scored <laughs> 737 goals throughout his career. His nickname was uh, Long John Silver. Who who coined that name That's
3: for it. him? I think it was after um John Charles. I'm pretty certain it was uh, something to do with john charles being called long john and he got the nickname himself um but i'll tell you what he he had mixed um support in america you know he got booed hell of a lot and i couldn't understand it from the italian community um he was always having to prove himself but knowing george he always did
0: I also like the, the story about his father hearing that he was left out of the Swansea team turning up at the training ground with a meat cleaver looking for the coach. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: Yes, I must admit, when I read that, I thought, oh, I'm glad I got on with him towards the end. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you didn't know a great deal about him at the time when you arrived uh, because you probably wouldn't have accused him one day of being lazy, would you? (laughs) Yeah,
3: that was a mistake. Um, (laughs) no, I'd never heard of him, obviously. Um, it was all new to me. The only person I'd heard of is Pelly and Charlie Aitken, (laughs) Uh, my old villa teammate who was at the Cosmos, but you know, it was getting used to the different cultures. We had so many different nationalities play on the team. All with a you know, a common bond of how to play and how to gel together. And it took a while. And I felt George was at the time lazy. Which I think he would even say himself he was. But he was entitled to be, and I realised that because he was a match winner. Even above Pelly, he was our match winner because he always scored goals. Did Did he get reprimanded after he landed one on you? Well, it was all over in seconds, really. Um, we both took a swing, and teammates jumped on us and uh, <laughs> got pulled apart. And that's when he sat me down, you know, um, and said, "Look, I am lazy, but you've been brought over here to make goals for me, and if you do that, we'll get on just fine." And so that's what I did.
0: Oh, aside <laughs> of um, aside of him, there was Franz Beckenbauer as well, who described the decision that he made to to join the Cosmos as the best decision of his yeah. life.
3: I, well, it's the same with me. i Without a doubt, looking back on it now, uh, I'd never been the player I was if I hadn't have gone over there. Um, and obviously, the experience in itself was second to none.
0: What did it do for your um, your preparation and the way you went about your game to to look around that changing room and to see World Cup winners, the greatest players in the world? Yeah, yeah. Did that help to raise the level of your preparation and did it help to turn you into a better player than you would have been had you stayed at Villa?
3: Oh, well, there's no doubt I, I, I became a better player than if I stayed at Villa. There's no doubt about it because... As I said getting used to the different styles of football of uh, different countries that were playing for us different players you know from different countries uh, you learn to adapt Um, and obviously some didn't speak English so but as soon as you got on the pitch everything just started to come together you know so it's a big learning curve and I'm glad I rose to the challenge and got you know, regular games.
0: The shootouts, these rules and regulations which they had over there, which again were uh, alien to everybody else. You had <laughs> one in the playoff against Fort Lauderdale prior to that uh, Seattle final. What are your thoughts of it? Picking up the ball, 35 metres out from goal, and then you have to get out and beat the keeper
3: who can move around his own penalty area. And that goalkeeper was Gordon Banks. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm glad you picked that particular shootout because that was probably one of the few that I scored. (laughs) I found them very, very difficult. Um, But I remember on the build-up to that game, Franz Beckenbauer advised me to use the outside of my foot for a change, which was kind of alien for me. I mean, we all know Franz could hit a ball any distance with the outside of his foot. And that's how he took his shootout goals. And he in fair be always scored so I thought I'll try this <laughs> and would you believe it
0: worked it got you into the final and that was the final game for Pelé and um, what an afternoon not only for him but for you yeah. to yeah. end up as the yes. MVP or to the man of the match in his yeah. F- yeah. final game
3: it never leaves you never leaves you I mean <laughs> I still remember things now that I, for- I forgot back then you know um All I I know is that particular day, I felt absolutely wonderful. I felt like I could do anything. I don't know why. Some games you you feel you're not going to perform, others you do. But this particular one, I just felt on top of my game. And I I didn't want the game to end. (laughs) I was enjoying it that much.
0: And then you decided to return home now that was that a football decision or was that a personal decision feeling you know maybe a bit homesick
3: Uh, a little bit of both Uh, my wife was very homesick you know i i had the release of training and playing games and getting my adrenaline buzz if you like whereas she was yeah she come to the home games but not the away games so she was on her own quite a bit and we didn't have transport, so it was understandable, you know, she was very homesick. And obviously I was, but um, not so much as, as uh, Sue was.
0: But it was something of a legendary name, even even now, who tempted you to go back. Ahmet Erdogan, the man who, of course, was the <laughs> Erdogan Brothers, who, who's, it was their initial idea which Warner yeah. Brothers followed up when they brought out Atlantic Records. He, he called you up when That's he was right. in England to tempt you back.
3: Yeah, well, I, Eddie Fermani was the manager then, the, the, obviously the Cosmos um, always went on tour around the world. Uh, after the season ended, what I did, I went back to England. And he was constantly on the phone asking me to go back. You know, he, he was saying, you know, you've got to come back. We want you back, which was great. But, as you said, the one that did it was Armour Uh called me up and saying, I'd like to have a chat with you down in London. I've got tickets for the, uh, the match at Wembley you know, in England International. And when I arrived down there, Franz Beckenbauer was waiting for me as well. <laughs> so it's a bit intimidating. I said, Franz Beckenbauer got on well with your mum. Oh, yes. Oh, she loves him. To this day, she keeps going on about Franz Beckenbauer. But he did, he looked after it tremendously well.
0: <laughs> so, so, Amit Ertegun sent a limo up to Birmingham to pick <laughs> yes. you up. I mean, what was that like? I mean, you know, we're talking about the 70s and all of a sudden, you know, coming down the streets in Birmingham's a, a, a limo, which is, uh, well, stands a, out yeah. a
3: bit. There was a few curtains twitching in our clothes. I can tell you now when this limo... It, it could only just about get in our cul-de-sac, this limo. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, he sent it up, we got driven down there to his uh, London residence. And as I say, he was there with friends. And to be honest, it didn't take me long to make my mind up.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was the money. It wasn't the money or Beckham. about, was it? It was, the, it was the promise that you got to go into Atlantic Records Vinyl Room to pick out as many records as you want.
3: Do you know, that might have had something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was a, Ahmet was a lovely, lovely guy. He really was. And as soon as he knew I I liked my music, he was constantly, you know, bringing these people in to see me and, uh, you know, supplying me with records. So, yeah, bless him.
0: There was a lot of rock stars around at the time trying to get involved in the North American Soccer League with Mick Jagger. I thought about it. but Peter Frampton and Rick Wakeman did get involved, didn't they?
3: Yeah. Yeah. They did, at Philadelphia, I believe. Um The thing is, everybody was trying to play catch up with the Cosmos, you know, we had the backing financially and other clubs took a lot of risks, put it that way. Um And I think that was eventually why the league collapsed. You know, they couldn't keep up.
0: You got to a soccer ball again, didn't you? Where you yeah. uh, faced Tampa Bay with uh, Rodney Maas. Uh, Ken Aglia was was still there, and you, you you played another great game.
3: Yeah, well, Rodney actually pulled out before the game. He had an infected knee, apparently, so uh, that was a bonus for us <laughs> not having him in the opposition. But you describe
0: um, the uh, you describe the preparation for that game, and that underlines even further this whole idea of. You know it was like being in a rock and roll band you know that there's yeah. planes charters. so you're you're traveling with the cheerleaders and the family is on another jet <laughs> how, how did that go down then with your uh with your wife you're, you're traveling with the the cheerleading troop and they're so- Yeah, i
3: think can i just say that when she reads it in the book that'll probably be the first time she's found out about it <laughs> <laughs>
0: You get there on the eve of this game. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. you're in San Diego. Yeah. This amazing accommodation, all the family, all the kids uh, yes. uh, yeah. uh, provided entertainment for, and then you have the uh, the club party or do. Yeah. And your guest of honor was uh, a bit of a big name in the movie business. It was
3: Steven Spielberg. Again, nobody knew he would be there, and and again, Ard- Armit and Steve Ross just brought him in. another one (laughs) you know it was just always a list stars
0: did you think at that stage that the dream was never going to end and it was going to be you know forever
3: i never took it for granted you know um you got used to it but i never took it for granted you know i always look forward to meeting people you know um whether they be rock stars or film stars it it was just a, a privilege to meet them
0: Steve Ross, we have not mentioned him. What was your relationship yeah. with like with him? Because yeah. it was he who got the group of investors, Walput, I think it was about, was it? 350,000 yeah. each, eight people into the uh, franchise to get it going immediately. But yeah. he was a force of nature, wasn't yeah.
3: he? He certainly was. And he, he had a, let's just say, a, a really good relationship with Giorgio Kinalia. And if you look at any of the clips of the games, um, whenever George scored at home, he would always run to where Steve Ross was sat in the stands. Always. Always celebrated his goals in front of Steve Ross. (laughs) So there was a, a big connection there.
0: I mean, he was involved in some of the mega mergers in the entertainment business uh, right up to just before he very tragically died didn't he in in 1991 but yeah yeah. i noted that he i mean his sense of humor or mischief was still around then because when he'd actually checked into the la hospital uh, where unfortunately he passed away he checked in under the name of george bailey which was the name of the character (laughs) played by james stewart in it's a wonderful life
3: <laughs> oh, that's the first i've heard that that, that sounds about right yeah <laughs> that's good i like that
0: and then so then it all comes down to an end it, i mean it does seem like a sad story in there because you have you have these 70 80 000 crowds there's joy there's entertainment everywhere yeah. you're going yeah. yeah. and then in 1985 it all folds and there's seven thousand yeah. in attendance at the last game
3: yeah i mean numerous things um Obviously, Pele had gone. Um AG replaced Pele. You know, um, as I say, other franchises were trying to play catch up with the Cosmos, who had an abundance of money at the time. Uh, the TV franchise side of things wasn't good. You know, they were backing out, so it, it, it was always going to go that way. They said they were looking for
0: reasons to find as to why. It went like it, it it did, and for many, the view was that you know, when Warners got involved and Steve Ross did turn it into this traveling roadshow where money was no object, they would <laughs> yes. nobody else could yes. keep up with their spending power.
3: No, no, that's right. You know, it it's very similar to the Premier League now. You know, the there is a elite bunch with that kind of cash and backing uh and that's why they are where they are they're at the top of it so uh that, you know i was very privileged to play with a, a very successful side but a very rich side
0: joe you you sum it up beautifully actually there's one line in the book where you says when pele left the magic and the crowds left with him
3: yeah i honestly believe that you know, we, uh, yeah it's such a charismatic, charismatic uh, character on and off the pitch that people related to. Um, And when he went, it just wasn't the same.
0: that was Steve Hunt talking about his new book. It's called, I'm with the Cosmos. Really entertaining read as well. That final day, by the way, when Pele took to the field playing a half for the Cosmos, and a half for Santos. 76,000 people turned up. There wasn't a spare seat to be had in the house. It was a really emotional day as well. Tears in the eyes of everybody. It's almost like they knew that the end was coming and that when he left, the magic really was going to be going with him. But on that day, he did leave them with one more moment to celebrate.
2: has at least wanted the momentum of that drive Pele with a hard shot into the goal a shot into the goal Pele has scored in his last half for the cosmos and this is what today is all about look at them all over him swapping Pele and you can be sure that tears are flowing down his cheeks underneath he's tied it up for the cosmos there's his wife. On the sidelines, Rose Marie, when he first met her, she was 14 years old in Santos, and her father wouldn't let Pele take her out by himself for seven years after that. Pele waited, and he's done it. Let's take a look at that. Pele, remember we told you he can be subtle, he can be slow, but he can be explosive. Watch this direct kick the power of it into the corner and the goalie never had a chance. 35 yards. The score. Pele won. Santos won. And he sure did that one all by himself. And everybody's forgotten about the rain all of a sudden. And the wind that's gusting around the stadium. Now they're getting what they came for. To see Pele do it one more time. Chip missing,
0: batting it away with his fist that time. And there we are. That is it for Talking Sportsbooks for this month. Coming up in the next few editions, some really good books and stories. Next time out, all crazy now. Uh, This is a history of football and life as well in the 1970s. I'm reading it at the moment and it's a must read this, especially if you grew up in the 1970s and long before Figo did the unthinkable with that move from Barcelona to Real Madrid. There was a move that for Ajax fans was equally as disturbing as they saw Johan Cruyff pull on the shirt of Feyenoord for a season. Ajax, remember at the time, thought that at 36 his time had come and gone. Only it hadn't, as he led Feyenoord to a league and a cup double. And don't forget, if you've missed any of the previous episodes, there's 15 or so of them, then you can find them all at the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the major streaming providers, including iTunes, Amazon, Audible, Spotify, Google and Stitcher. For the moment, though, from me, Tim Cable, thanks very much for joining me today and we'll see you again very soon.